So it's only right that I'm recording this on a headset microphone next to Flinders Street, Melbourne's central train station, and there's a lot of background noise, and this isn't going to be a great recording, <laughs> quality-wise, but it's in keeping with the nature of this episode, this little piece being about on-the-go, recording where you're at with what you've got. I had the great fortune a few years ago of getting involved in a small way with the school strikes for climate and a lot of the stuff happening in Norm around the climate crisis protests 2019, 2020, before COVID really kicked off. And one of the young people I had the good fortune of meeting and being inspired by was Sasha. For the last couple of years, I haven't really kept in touch with them until not too long ago. Up popped a message on my social media feeds that Sasha was on a bit of a trip and was traveling from Australia to Canada without flying. And that caused me to ask a lot of questions. So I reached out and we have exchanged a couple audio messages in the last couple weeks and I've edited it down and made it into this little package for you. If you're interested in how to get from Australia to Canada without flying and without getting very wet, and also the why, why Sasha is doing this. And I think I found in that story a a deeper and quite powerful message. And in this piece, you're going to hear about travels through mainland Asia, through the Southeast Asian archipelagos, how to leave Australia without flying, which is uh, hard, as you might imagine, and maybe harder than you might think. It was a lot of fun to put together, and I want to thank Sasha for their time and their generosity and their answers. Hi there, Mark. Yeah, wow, it's been such a long time. Uh, Again, that that memory of us by the, the Yarra River feels like so long ago. But that's right, yeah, so I left Melbourne January 2023 to head off to Canada, in fact. So a very long trip, and you're right, a lot of it is over water. But I guess, you know, I'll start start at the beginning. I guess the impetus for the travel, for this, this big journey, you know, came out of an interest to relocate to Canada. So this is, in fact, a permanent move to Canada. But there were some significant ethical questions that I had about air travel. And this has been an emerging thing that I've had in the back of my head for quite some time now. You know, how can we, you know, in some ways justify the emissions that are associated with, you know, frequent air travel? And I think that there's a lot of thinking that needs to be done and a lot of public conversations that I think are emerging at the moment. Although I've I would say that, you know, aviation emissions aren't quite forefront of a lot of people's mind. And I think that, you know, generally there's still quite an acceptance that, you know, a flight domestic in Australia is is acceptable. And I think in large ways that's right. And I think that that's understandable. But I think we do need to have a bit of a recalibration of, you know, what is essential flying. So that's kind of, you know, the, the context of my thinking. And leaving Australia, i got to say, that was probably one of the, the harder parts. So I did kind of, 
of course, catch the, the grim greyhound up to Brisbane, caught some trains, of course, did a bit of hitchhiking in the Northern Territories. And that was great. I had so much fun and there was so much that I, I miss about that. And I feel like there was so much of that beautiful country that I miss. One day I look forward to returning to it. I think, you know, I've got a morbid joke with my friends and family that I'll be back, you know, somehow at the, at the next funeral. But, you know, that aside, getting out of Australia, that was a real kicker. And that was, you know, I think a lot of chance and a lot of luck that was on my side in that moment. So I got up to Darwin because I thought that was one of the, the major exit points of Australia by sea. Like you, I had an idea of catching a container ship or some sort of vessel, maybe a fishing vessel heading up into Indonesia or Timor-Leste. And that proved a little bit hard, i got to say. So I, I hitched out, I remember hitching out to the port of Darwin and, you know, the security guard was very, you know, interested in what I was doing and had a bit of a, a chuckle and a bit of a laugh at me for rocking up to the security boom gates and saying, hey, how would I get on to one of those big ships heading out to Indonesia, you know, an oil tanker or some sort of freight mover. And he very quickly dispelled the idea of getting out of Australia that way because I think that Australia is highly bureaucratised and I think that it would be very hard, short of sneaking onto a vessel, would be very hard to get out. So I had a bit of a pivot and decided to approach some sailors, so some, you know, people with their own private boats. And I had an idea of getting a little... You know, I describe it as my, you know, lost dog poster. So I printed out this this image of me and then said, you know, are you heading north and are you looking for crew? And I went around to all the marinas in Darwin and put them up on the notice boards. And, you know, about a month later or so, I got a call. And that was uh, the beginning of, I think, the first step, which was leaving Australia. Um... And that was with the beautiful sailing vessel Windigo, and the captain was David Rainbow, a great name, and my one of my other crew was with Sally O'Donnell. And that, was, and that was a really, you know, it was a hard experience. I'd never actually sailed before, and I think, you know, lowering the mainsail as we were leaving the, the port of Darwin at, you know, the crack of dawn even earlier... You know, a moment came over me where I kind of just lost sight of the land and there was this moment of, all right, here I am and this is this is the beginning of it. You know, skipping over some bits and bobs, there was a bit of a drama. We had our engine failure, which got a bit hairy at times. One of our, or two of our, our sails tore and then we were kind of caught in a still right outside Dili, with, uh, the capital of Timor-Leste. And that was quite an experience. Um, you know, we had a bit of a medical emergency as well. So that added to the stress. And I think we were all a little bit, you know, eight days in, we were kind of like with no options to getting to land. We were a little bit tired, but thankfully, and, you know, this is quite quite a funny one. A Santos helicopter was flying over, we think, to, you know, surveil one of their offshore rigs. Uh, and they heard our distressed call and they responded and then, mobilized some of the Dili port authorities who then came over with a big ship and they pulled us into port and that, and that was quite an experience um, and then you know kind of continued sailing with Windigo over across to Labuan Banjo, well first to Kupang in Indonesia 
and then up to Labuan Banjo, and that's where I left the, the boat, and then, you know, started the journey of overland in some fashion of, you know, being an archipelago nation. I think there's a lot of travel between islands, and that was useful. And, you know, I would catch ferries, local ferries, catch buses, I would hitchhike, doing whatever I could along the way. And that was a, a brilliant experience. You know, fast-forwarding it, you know, big trips up to to Java, past Bali, uh, in, yeah, into Sumatra, and then into Jakarta, where I then caught another big ferry, up, a two-day ferry up to Singapore. And that began my kind of saying goodbye to the ocean for quite some time. And I think there was a lot of... Maybe I didn't think about it at the time, but, you know, being an Australian, uh, you know, a coastal Australian, I think there's a, a connection that, you know, you're never too far away from the ocean, never too far away from a swim. And I think at that point, um, you know, entering the mainland of the Asian continent, you know, this is Malaysia and then coming into Thailand, that was, that was the end of seeing the ocean for a long time. So in a way, it's kind of, I saw a lot of the ocean, you know, coming over the, the Arafura Sea and then into the, you know, the archipelago up in Komodo. And then all of a sudden, I didn't see any sea. So there was a kind of a big shift going on there. Yeah, I'm not really sure how much, how detailed you want this sort of journey step by step. But I guess I'll kind of zoom over it. So I caught a, a boat down the Mekong and then a train into Laos and then a train up into the south of China. And China was a beautiful, beautiful country. And I really kind of missed the south of China. And then I had the idea of crossing over the Himalayas. So this is kind of going a little bit up into Sichuan province. So this is like Chengdu. And then I kind of cross west over, over the top of the Himalayas. So this is going through Tibet. And that was an eye-opening experience. There was a lot I, I learned and a lot I heard and a lot I saw that it, it did worry me and it did disturb me. I think that there is such a, a fierce repression of you know, the Tibetan culture and the Tibetan kind of expression. You know, I feel like in a lot of ways it's been reduced, you know, the security apparatus there. The, I can't tell you how many times I had to show my passport and all my visa applications, my special Tibet permits. Uh, that, was, that was quite an ordeal. But then, yeah, so crossing over the, the beautiful Himalayas and that was an eye-opening and, and very beautiful experience. The... You know, it wasn't particularly cold because it's kind of the hot season, but it was it was really something else. And then so I crossed over into Nepal. So this is coming all the way over. So I've got around 5,000 metres up uh, above the sea level and then coming crossing down into Kathmandu. And that was, you know, a beautiful experience as well. And so a lot, lot of the countryside and a lot, lot of Nepal. And that's been a very lovely experience. Spent about a month there. And then pushed over into India, and that's that's where I am now. So I crossed over the the border in Roxol Birganj, uh, caught a a car down there, and then caught a train from from Roxol to where I am now, which is in very very sunny, very humid Lucknow. And I've met some really really amazing people along the way. It's been it's been a very interesting experience. And you're right. So the, there's one other ocean that I'm a little bit worried about, and that's the Atlantic Ocean. So, you know, as soon as I'm on the Asian continent, I've got access to Africa and then also Europe. 
Um, but as soon as I get to that west coast of Europe or Africa, I think I've got a little bit of a a bit of a problem on my hands. The Atlantic is a very big ocean, and I hear it's quite a rough ocean. So I'm currently looking at my options. It's not as apparent because given I'm in India, it's not you know urgent. But I've certainly put my feelers out into the the sailing community, which there is surprisingly quite a big transatlantic community. And then hopefully when I get over to the States or maybe even the Caribbean, I think I will somehow get up. But that that's maybe six months, maybe up to a year away. So still unsure, but that's that's okay at the moment. As I said earlier, there was that dimension of you know, pollution and the kind of the need to recalibrate our expectation of what is appropriate flying. But there was another dimension as well, and that was my dad is also, he's Canadian, and by, by, by that I'm also Canadian, so I've got the rights of citizenship there, and that's in part why I decided to go there, because there's a whole other side of my family that I don't know. I've, most of them I've never met. Um, last time I was there, I flew there, Um, when I was five so it's kind of about a discovery of my family as well and there's also the story that my dad has been telling me of his journey across so he came over to Australia in the 70s so he kind of did somewhat of a a mirror uh, route as well so he came down through Iran into India you know then coming over to the Indonesian archipelago then came over by a boat so there's a bit of a sort of I think of it like a bit of a poetic mirroring of sense like he came to Australia and now I'm going to go to Canada and maybe complete the circle Hi there Mark just a quick follow up on that voice memo I've tried as much as I could to find a a quiet spot that said India is a very loud place there's a lot of horns going on in the background I'm sure you can hear Maybe the birds, maybe the crows and the eagles flying overhead. Thankfully, I haven't had any trouble. I'm currently on the roof and there's been marauding monkeys going over the roof, you know, every uh, occasion, which has been interesting to watch. But luckily, I haven't seen any around me now. Yeah, but also there was some a few points that I'd like to, to pick up on as well. I think also reflecting on, you know, my privilege as a white male heterosexual passing, I think there's a lot of barriers that aren't apparent to me that I've kind of I've been able to go to these places I've been able to walk in dark alleys and and not feel particularly vulnerable so I think that the privilege of travel you know there's flying and kind of dropping into a country is one thing but also going down the back roads going down you know the less beaten paths which has been a necessity for this sort of travel has been very much enabled by my ability and my kind of the who I am in this world Um, I I, like I've been following other travelers and 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 looking at how they've done it and it's been it's been interesting to watch who is traveling like this and and what's enabled them so I think that's an important dimension of this travel as well there's it's not accessible to everyone Um, I've spent you know a number of years now saving up for this travel and I've got two very powerful passports you know Canadian and Australian so visa trouble hasn't been so 
hard for me to get onto. That said, you know, getting permits for Tibet was particularly onerous. Um, yeah, you know, traveling through Southeast Asia, I've just got these vivid memories of. I'm politically minded, and I think that I've always kind of sought out what's going on in the particular places, and and I've been very lucky already seeing some very, I think, pivotal moments in in you know some of these countries' histories and and developments. You know, some standouts being the the Timor Leste election, which saw, you know in a way, the old guard come back into power. Um, you know, Zanana Guzmao you know, is now, you know, leading the country with Ramasota. And then also in Thailand, I was coming at the wake of the election. And the recent elections has been very contentious there. You know, we've got the, the monarchy there and then also some deep business interests that have held, the, held power and, and, and used them the power of the military to hold on to that, that, that governing authority. However, you know, there's, there was an election not long ago that really saw an upset. And I was there at some, some political rallies and saw some very motivated speeches and was able to talk to a lot of people about, you know, what's going on in their country and, and, and what they see for it. So there's been, you know, that element as well. There's been a very cool very interesting element to it as well. It's not just, you know, travelling or heading off to Bali to hang out or something like that. It's been a, it's been hard. Like I will say, it's been, it is elements that are not pleasant, you know. Hey, Sasha. Thank you so much for your generosity and sharing that recording and sort of uh, contextualizing your journey and walking us through it. It definitely sounds like there were some harrowing moments. I I can't imagine the eeriness of being becalmed on a sea, unable to move, feeling stranded, and of all things being saved by a Santos helicopter. I guess here's my final question to you. Maybe this is, hopefully, hopefully this is coming at like the right time of your trip where you're kind of at this uh, at this point, you can look back at how far you've already come, how far you've yet to go. Of course, you've weighed up the moral implications of flying, you know, effortlessly halfway around the world. You've said, okay, here's how much carbon that entails. Here's how much uh, desensitization and, and loss of the travel experience that that causes. Hey, you can just board a plane and essentially teleport somewhere else without any sense of adventure or or sacrifice to do it. This question is coming from a place of, I've traveled a lot and it's been invaluable to me. So I don't want to make it seem like I'm anti-travel, but I guess because the moral aspect is important to you, I guess, have you thought about and have you weighed and, and how has it come out in the uh, final equation? The idea that travel is inherently extractive. It doesn't give much to the communities you're passing through. You're consuming energy to transport yourself. You're consuming local services and and goods. Of course, you're bringing economic value into those communities, I guess in kind of a capitalist way. In this time we're in, where personal responsibility for carbon emissions is very important, this personal responsibility for how we live is very important, how do you think about travel as something that 
you know, our generation or the next one or two or three generations, how are they going to think about travel in a way that's maybe contrasted with how your father did this trip 50 years ago? Do we have to think about it differently? And uh, is it worth it at the end of the day? <laughs> Howdy, Mark. Uh, yes, absolutely. I think that's a great question. Um, yeah, it, it, that really cuts to the heart of it. Is travel inherently extractive? Um, and you know, my first pass at it, I think I would have to say absolutely. There's, there's so much that goes into travel, even, you know, buying clothes or eating out or the emissions that are associated to the air conditioning that I'm, I'm currently enjoying and maybe you can hear in the background. There's so much that still is embedded even in the context of not flying. Um, you know, there, there's a moment that I really remember on a barge that was going from Labuan Banjo in Indonesia to West Nusa Tenggara and I was sitting on one of the top decks and I just look up and see these huge exhaust pipes. This was a very big barge, you know, it's a local, local, local ferry moving a lot of people across the different islands. It was a beautiful way to travel. But I'd look up and just see these huge kind of exhaust pipes that was just spewing and spewing this black soot that I felt like it, could, like it was just caking my skin. And in that moment, I was just like, how on earth is this an environmental, you know, an environmentally sound way to travel? If my goal is to reduce these emissions, how would this work? Like how, how does it not compute sort of thing? And I, and I, in, in that moment, I was just like, well, that's too right. It, travel is inherently, inherently extractive and emissions intensive and I think there's a lot to reflect on that and I think that much of life, much of modern life especially in the west, especially in places like Australia are baked with this embedded emissions that anything that we can really do, walking to the shops you know, you're, there's cement that's kind of paved over the land there's there are these skyscrapers there's, you know we all kind of know, know this. There's just embedded emissions in so much that we touch, so much that we breathe, we consume, that it's near impossible to escape. And that's not some sort of... I'm not trying to present a, you know, what about this sort of argument. I think that that question, you know, is travel inherently extractive? And, you know, the, the kind of following logic being, should we reconsider it? I think absolutely. We really should reconsider um, curbing our travel habits. There's so much travel that can be done in Australia, for example. You know, if you're an Australian person, or kind of somebody visiting Australia, whatever. Like your, there's kind of domestic travel. There's seeing different parts of your own country. But also, you're right. I think that travel is a wonderful experience for for the person. I think that there's so much that can be gained from seeing different cultures, from interacting with different people. I think, I think there, there's, 
it's so so evident that it, I don't really need to kind of emphasize the point. But travel is so so valuable and worthwhile that it's it comes down to a question and a personal reflection of what you think is enough and what what do you think is is fair. There's that point of you know how can I do this, and that, and that's a personal question that I think we all need to come to, and that point of putting you know, the perspective in the future generations I think is a really good idea because you know not too long ago people weren't holidaying in in Europe for their you know their winter break you know people weren't jetting off for Bali like that those are modern there's a very very new and and I think problematic understandings of what it is to be a modern person and somebody in the modern world because I think there's a deep-seated and I think beautiful tendency for people to think about each other and think about what is fair. But on the broad side, I think that often gets washed out and and put aside for other interests. back in my Hampton studio after talking to Sasha a few weeks ago. I want to apologize to him for how long this took to get out the door, but I really wanted to reflect on how great it is to, while traveling, while having a life experience like Sasha's having now, to not only you know be taking photos, but also to spend that bit of time journaling or uh, doing conversations like this where you're recording some of your thoughts sort of um, extemporaneously spending that time on a rooftop in Lucknow, reflecting uh, out loud, because this is going to be a great thing for Sasha to have in the future, and I want to thank them for their generosity. It was very, very kind of them to spend this time talking to me and reflecting on their, their journey. Just a quick note on how we did this. This was just conducted over Facebook Messenger, just by exchanging audio messages, and then I was able to pull that audio out through Chrome's developer tools, which is a really great way of getting decent audio wherever somebody is and doing an interview uh, asynchronously, which I think is a great way to do it. It gives people time to consider and really think about what they want to say, get the chance to, to do it again as well if they want to, and it avoids uh, any interruptions or cutting people off, which I appreciate. So I hope you've enjoyed this little special from Here Media Studios. And if you have any questions about how to do something like this or produce any kind of audio project, please don't hesitate to get in touch with me at hello at hearmedia.studio.